In fact, in many of the less fashionable parts of cities and towns, fast food and convenience store food is all that is available. In the near future, this trend is likely to extend even to the more prosperous parts of towns and suburbs. Fast food outfits such as McDonald's may have more ways to cut costs and so may prove a bit more resilient in the face of economic collapse than supermarket chains, but they are no substitute for food security because they too depend on industrial agribusiness. Their food inputs, such as high fructose, corn syrup, genetically modified potatoes, various soy-based fillers, factory-farmed beef, pork, and chicken, and so forth, are derived from oil, two-thirds of which is imported, as well as fertilizer made from natural gas. They may be able to stay in business longer, supplying food that isn't really food, but eventually they will run out of inputs along with the rest of the supply chain. Before they do... They may for a time sell burgers that aren't really burgers, like the bread that wasn't really bread that the Soviet government distributed in Leningrad during the Nazi blockade. It was mostly sawdust with a bit of rye flour added for flavor. Can we think of any ways to avoid this dismal scenario? The Russian example may give us a clue. Many Russian families could gauge how fast the economy was crashing and, based on that, decide how many rows of potatoes to plant. Could we perhaps do something similar? There is already a healthy gardening movement in the United States. Can it be scaled up? The trick is to make small patches of farmland available for non-mechanical cultivation by individuals and families in increments as small as 1,000 feet. The ideal spots would be fertile bits of land with access to rivers and streams for irrigation. Provisions would have to be made for campsites and for transportation, allowing people to undertake seasonal migrations out to the land to grow food during the growing season and haul the produce back to the population centers after taking in the harvest. An even simpler approach has been successfully used in Cuba converting urban parking lots and other empty bits of land to raised bed agriculture. Instead of continually trucking in vegetables and other food, it is much easier to truck in soil, compost, and mulch once a season. Raised highways can be closed to traffic, since there is unlikely to be much traffic in any case, and used to catch rainwater for, for irrigation. Rooftops and balconies can be used for hothouses, henhouses, and a variety of other agricultural uses. How difficult would this be to organize? Well, Cubans were actually helped by their government. But the Russians managed to do it more or less in spite of the Soviet bureaucrats, so we might be able to do it in spite of the American ones. The government could theoretically head up such an effort, purely hypothetically speaking, of course, because I see no evidence that such an effort is being considered. For our fearless national leaders, such initiatives are too low level. If they stimulate the economy and get the banks lending again, the potatoes will simply grow themselves. All they need to do is print some more money, right? Moving on to shelter. Again, let's look at how the Russians managed to muddle through. In the Soviet Union, people did not own their, their place of residence. Everyone was assigned a place to live which was recorded in a person's internal passport. People could not be dislodged from their place of residence for as long as they drew oxygen. Since most people in Russia live in cities, 
The place of residence was usually an apartment or a room in a communal apartment with a shared bathroom and kitchen. There was a permanent housing shortage, and so people often doubled up with three generations living together. The apartments were often crowded, sometimes bordering on squalid. If people wanted to move, they had to find somebody else uh, who wanted to move who would want to exchange rooms or apartments with them. There were always long waiting lists for apartments, and children often grew up, got married, and had children before receiving a place of their own. These all seem like negatives, but consider the flip side of all this. The high population density made this living arrangement quite affordable. With several generations living together, families were on hand to help each other, Grandparents provided daycare, freeing up their children's time to do other things. The apartment buildings were always built near public transportation, so they did not have to rely on private cars to get around. Apartment buildings are relatively cheap to heat, and municipal services are easy to provide and maintain because of the short runs of pipe and cable. Perhaps most importantly, after the economy collapsed, people lost their savings, many people lost their jobs, even those that still had jobs often did not get paid for months, and when they were, the value of their wages was destroyed by hyperinflation, but there were no foreclosures, no evictions, municipal services such as heat, water, and sometimes even hot water continued to be provided, and everyone had their families close by. Also, Because it was so difficult to relocate, people generally stayed in one place for generations, and so they tended to know all the people around them. After the economic collapse, there was a a large spike in the crime rate, which made it very helpful to be surrounded by people who weren't strangers and who could could keep an eye on things. Lastly, in an interesting twist, the Soviet housing arrangement delivered an amazing final windfall. In the 1990s, all of these apartments were privatized, and the people who lived in them suddenly became owners of some very valuable real estate free and clear. Switching back to the situation in the U.S., in recent months, many people have reconciled themselves to the idea that their house is not an ATM machine, nor is it a nest egg. They already know that they will not be able to comfortably retire by selling it, or get rich by fixing it up and flipping it. And quite a few people have acquiesced to the fact that real estate prices are going to continue heading lower. The question is, how much lower? A lot of people still think that there must be a lower limit, a realistic price. This thought is connected to the notion that housing is a necessity. After all, everybody needs a place to live. Well, it is certainly true that some sort of shelter is necessary, be it an apartment, a dorm room, a bunk in a barrack, a boat, a camper, a tent, a teepee, a wigwam, a shipping container. The list is virtually endless. But there is no reason to think at all that a suburban single-family house is in any sense a requirement. It is little more than a cultural preference and a very short-sighted one at that. 
Most suburban houses are expensive to heat and cool, inaccessible by public transportation, expensive to hook up to public utilities because of the long runs of pipe and cable, and require a great deal of additional public expenditure on road, bridge, and highway maintenance, school buses, traffic enforcement, and other nonsense. They often take up what was once valuable agricultural land. They promote a car-centric culture that is destructive of urban environments, causing a proliferation of dead downtowns. Many families that live in suburban houses can no longer afford to live in them and expect others to bail them out. As far as this living arrangement, as this living arrangement becomes unaffordable for all concerned, it will also become unlivable. Municipalities and public utilities will not have the funds to lavish on sewer, water, electricity, road and bridge repair, and police. Without cheap and plentiful gasoline, natural gas, and heating oil, many suburban dwellings will become both inaccessible and unlivable. The inevitable result will be a mass migration of suburban refugees toward the more survivable, more densely settled towns and cities. The luckier ones will find friends or family to stay with. For the rest, it would be very helpful to improvise a solution. One obvious answer is to repurpose the ever-plentiful vacant office buildings for residential use. Converting offices to dormitories is quite straightforward. Many of them already have kitchens and bathrooms, plenty of partitions and other furniture, and all they're really missing is beds. Putting in beds is just not that difficult. The new subsistence economy is unlikely to generate a large surplus that is necessary for sustaining the current large, large population of office plankton. <laughs> the businesses that once occupied these offices are not coming back, so we might as well find new and better uses for them. Another category of real estate that is likely to go unused and that can be repurposed for new communities is college campuses. The American four-year college is an institution of dubious merit. It exists because American public schools failed to teach in 12 years what Russian public schools managed to teach in eight. As fewer and fewer people become able to afford college, which is likely to happen because meager career prospects after graduation will make them bad risks for student loans, Perhaps this will provide the impetus to do something about the public education system. One idea would be to scrap it and then start small, but eventually build something a bit more on par with world standards. College campuses make perfect community centers. They're dormitories for newcomers, fraternities and sororities for the more settled residents, and plenty of grand public buildings that can be put to a variety of uses. A college campus normally contains the usual wasteland of mowed turf that can be repurposed to grow food or at the very least hay and to graze cattle. <laughs> Perhaps some enlightened administrators, trustees, and faculty members will fall upon this idea once they see admissions flatlining and endowments dropping to zero without any need for government involvement. So, so here we have a ray of hope, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> 